Hello, everyone. Happy New Year and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast for part two of the Paris Commune. To recap, the October 31st uprising on the Hôtel de Ville had been successfully thwarted. For the French government, it must have seemed for a time that a major crisis had been diverted. After all, the Prussians still surrounded Paris and continued to lay siege to its outskirts, making life extremely difficult for the city's inhabitants. As the greater conflict of the Franco-Prussian War continued and showed no signs of stopping, Adolphe Thiers, the leader of the National Assembly of Conservatives, implored the foreign ministers of Austria, Britain, and Russia for aid against the Germans, but no one was willing to take him up on it. This unfortunately makes sense, as doing so would shake the otherwise delicate balance of peace that had kept the continent stable for the better part of 60 years. With no other alternative, Thiers then traveled to the medieval city of Tours in central France, which at that time in the war was occupied by the Germans, and met with Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. This too, however, proved in vain, as all that ended up happening was Bismarck demanding heavy reparations from France, as well as the Alsace-Lorraine region of the country to be ceded back to Germany. Thus Thiers returned to Paris bearing the weight of all this bad news. As no alternative to signing an armistice had been reached, the government of national defense made the decision to continue the war by raising and deploying a new army to meet the enemy. While this new force had won success at Coulmier against a Bavarian regiment, it suffered a devastating loss on November 29, 1870, when some 4,000 French troops were killed, compared with just 1,700 Germans, though I don't use the word just here lightly, as both numbers are staggering to this civilian. Meanwhile, Parisians were suffering from a combination of the government's poor decisions and a virtual blockade by the Germans. Food shortages became commonplace as nothing could get past enemy forces. Medicine, coal, and firewood also became scarce, which would ultimately prove lethal as late autumn turned to winter. Many died from disease, having gone untreated, and so dire was the food situation in particular that the people soon began raiding the city's zoo to feast on the animals there. When these ran out, they turned to common rats. The only communication with the outside world was through carrier pigeon, balloon, and a sort of primitive flotation device in the form of an iron ball that could be stuffed with letters and other mail and sent adrift on the Seine, that is, when said river wasn't frozen over during the winter. To make matters worse, by January of 1871, the Germans had changed their tactics. On Bismarck's orders, they installed artillery devices loaded with a seemingly endless supply of ammunition in the forts surrounding the capital and bombarded it night and day. This led to some truly staggering statistics, as anywhere between 300 and 600 shells a day landed in the city center. By January 22nd, the Parisians decided that they'd had enough. With the defeat of the French forces on four different fronts, combined with the fact that the capital basically had a famine on its hands, some 400 National Guardsmen, namely from working-class neighborhoods, along with members from an assortment of politically radical groups, coalesced on the Hôtel de Ville once more. They were met with a battalion of Garde Mobile from the Brittany region, who had been deployed there to protect the building from the enemy, as well as any protesters who saw fit to lay siege to it. Surprisingly, everything started out in a civil manner. The National Guardsmen and demonstrators who'd shown up expressed their concerns over the state of the French military, demanding that it be placed under public control. On top of that, they called for the immediate organization of a commune in place of the failing monarchy. However, by the afternoon, the first shots rang out. To this day, it's uncertain who fired first, but naturally, both sides blamed one another. Six demonstrators were killed that day, and shortly thereafter, 83 quote-unquote radicals were arrested, and two revolutionary publications were shuttered. At the time all this was happening, the government of national defense, which was in the town of Bordeaux at that moment, had at last arrived at the conclusion that the war with the Prussians simply couldn't continue. Four days later, on January 26th, a ceasefire was called, and an armistice was signed. 
Contained within it were special conditions in regards to Paris. The Germans would withdraw from the outskirts of the city, and French soldiers were to give up their arms, but not be taken prisoner by the enemy. In addition, the capital was to pay an indemnity of 200 million francs. While this all sounded good on paper, it certainly wouldn't sit well with the city's citizens, and would prove to be the fuse to ignite the already volatile powder keg of a situation in which they found themselves. With the old monarchy all but having been tossed out the window, order needed to be restored. The national government in Bordeaux hastily organized national elections, which were held on February 8th that same year. Of the factions and candidates on the ballot, everything from a constitutional monarchy to a democratic republic to a completely new and radical socialist order were proposed. In the end, however, it was a democratic republic that won out, and what was known as the Third Republic was officially adopted. The first chief executive was none other than Adolphe Thiers. His victory was seen as a step in the right direction for more moderately conservative voters, as he had been an outspoken critic of the war from the get-go, and would do whatever he could to secure peace, which he did on February 24th at Versailles, signing the official armistice with Chancellor Bismarck and Kaiser Wilhelm I. But Paris's problems were only just beginning. In the wake of the end of the war, some 400 cannons, many of which were now obsolete, as they'd been replaced with newer makes and models, were left within the city limits. The National Guard, which by that point was almost completely overrun by revolutionaries, moved the weapons to parks and public spaces within working-class neighborhoods, away from the hands of the regular army and national government. Their reason for doing this was simple, to prevent government forces from using them against the ever-growing number of radicals. Indeed, it wasn't long before Thiers began hatching a plan to get the cannons back under government control. But a young doctor, sympathetic to the plight of the radicals, soon stepped in to negotiate a compromise between the two factions. Himself from the working-class neighborhood of Montmartre, Georges Clemenceau, who'd go on to serve as France's prime minister twice in the early years of the 20th century, proposed that a portion of the cannons would remain in Paris, while the rest would be allotted to the regular army. While the revolutionaries were all for it, Thiers and the National Assembly rejected the offer, an act that further stoked the flames of the former's distrust in the government. To add salt to the wounds, Thiers even went as far as to move the national government from its wartime headquarters in Bordeaux to Versailles, skipping over the capital city altogether so as to avoid the quote-unquote unpleasant interaction with radicals and demonstrators. Two more radical publications were forcibly shut down at this time, and on March 17, 1871, Thiers called together a fateful meeting with members of his cabinet to discuss the issue of the cannons. Together with the then-mayor of Paris, Jules Ferry, the commander of the National Guard, Dorel de Baladin, and the commander of the regular army unit stationed in the city, Joseph Vinois, they arranged to send troops in the following day to secure the cannons. Perhaps it might surprise you to learn that both de Baladin and Vinois initially opposed the idea, countering that said soldiers were undisciplined, too few in number, and naturally completely demoralized following France's defeat in the war. Vinois even went as far as to urge that they wait for the Prussians to release all French prisoners of war first, so that the army could return to its full size and strength before striking. But Thiers was firm in his stance of immediate response, vouching for the element of surprise on the unsuspecting radical factions. If the seizure of the cannons is not successful, he began, then the government will withdraw from the city center, build up its forces, then attack with overwhelming force. The cabinet and reluctantly de Paladin and Vinois agreed, with Vinois giving his men the order to carry out the seizure the next day. The morning of March 18, 1871 was calm and serene. With spring just around the corner, it was surprisingly comfortable, the scent of blossoms filling the air with a sweetness that betrayed any hint of the chaos and tumult that were about to ensue. Before dawn that day, two brigades of the regular army ascended the hill at Montmartre, where the largest assembly of cannons was located. Initially, the troops thought their task would be easy, but little did they suspect the radicalized National Guardsmen who were already there waiting for them. 
Naturally, a heated exchange ensued, resulting in the shooting death of a guardsman named Turpin. Word of the incident spread throughout the neighborhood like wildfire, and it wasn't long before other radicalized guardsmen rallied to the hilltop to meet the soldiers head-on. In the meantime, the regular army had no trouble securing the cannons from other neighborhoods, but it soon became apparent that those at Montmartre weren't going to be relinquished without a fight. By sunrise, a crowd of guardsmen and civilian revolutionaries had gathered at the summit of the hill. By now, the regular army brigades realized that they were outnumbered, and as their horses hadn't yet shown up, completely immobilized. With no other alternative and realizing what was at stake, they began to join the throng, despite the orders and protestations of their commanding officer, General Claude Lecomte, upon whom they quickly turned. Both he and his fellow officers were dragged first to the local National Guard headquarters, then to a ballroom at Chateau Rouge, where they were subjected to verbal and physical violence. There was even a call by a group known as the Committee of Vigilance to try the officers and execute them. From there, the demonstrators began rounding up other top government officials, taking them to public places and either beating them senseless or else shooting them to death. One such figure was General Jacques-Léon Clément Thomas, an ardent Republican who himself had been exiled by Napoleon III for his opposition to the monarchy. He was a particularly hated target due to the strict discipline he imposed on Parisians while the city was under siege from the Germans. Despite adopting a disguise as a civilian, he was quickly recognized by the throng and taken to a building on the Rue des Rosiers, beaten with rifle butts, then shot several times until he was dead. Following this incident, it was Lecomte's turn. Thrown into a nearby garden, he was shot nine times in the back, where he was also left for dead. With these two having been disposed of, the National Guard once again ordered a march on the Hôtel de Ville, where they believed the government had regrouped. Unfortunately for them, this wasn't the case, as Thiers had ordered his cabinet to regroup in Versailles so as to avoid any trouble with the revolutionaries and gain enough troops to recapture the city. While disappointed with this turn of events, the National Guard and their radical supporters began organizing a new government, one that would come to be known as the Paris Commune. Thanks for tuning in this week, dear listeners, and a very happy new year to you all. I apologize for the spacing out between the first and second installments, as the end of the year madness proved short on time. However, the third and final installment in the story of the Paris Commune will premiere next Thursday as planned, so please tune in again for the exciting conclusion. I have some fascinating topics planned for this year, and I'm quite looking forward to sharing them with you. If you enjoyed this episode as well as the first part, please consider supporting this podcast monthly. You can do this by visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and clicking the support button you find there. There you'll find three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways, so please do so through said link, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next week, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Thank you.